G'day mate, 40 here. It's 11.25 a.m. Friday morning here in Sydney. I think it's uh, January 20th. And uh, someone in the comments asked me to discuss this right-wing media feud just took an ugly turn. This is Steven Crowder versus Daily Wire. So here's a report from the Daily Beast. So it's uh, moderately amusing. I never paid any attention to Steven Crowder. I never really paid much attention to uh, This right-wing media feud just took an ugly either. turn. Uh-oh. By Justin Barragona. An increasingly ugly and personal feud has publicly broken out this week between... So I see this phrasing in, in the news all the time, that when things get personal, that they're ugly. But... What's inherently ugly about personal feuds? Uh, they can be incandescent. They can be beautiful. That's just purely, you know, an aesthetic approach. So why does the news keep portraying personal attacks and personal conflicts as ugly? Because it is a step outside the normal process of news reporting, which is what bureaucracies issue. So the fundamental business of news, all right, is to package advertising around the pronouncements and struggles between various bureaucracies. So this particular story is about two bureaucracies. So Stephen Crowder has a bureaucracy working for him, and the Daily Wire is another bureaucracy. It's something like a $100 million a year company. And when when the news gets out outside of the bureaucratic, and bureaucracy includes the National Football League. The National Football League organizes games, and athletes play games within this bureaucratic setting. And then if athletes take their feuds or their com competition outside of that bureaucratic setting, then the news media inevitably labels it like ugly and personal, and that these are bad things. Like I. I don't see why the personal is ugly. I don't see why name-calling is, is ugly. Two of the biggest names in the conservative entertainment complex, with one popular YouTuber accusing right-wing media boy King Ben Shapiro's Daily Wire empire of colluding with tech companies to tamp down right-wing content. So again, what's uh, ugly? Either the accusation is accurate, or the accusation is false, or it's partly accurate. There's nothing like terribly you know, ugly about it. It's just purely an aesthetic statement. I remember I once asked the uh, Econ Talk host, economist Russell Roberts, why is Jewish identity a wonderful thing, but uh, white identity is ugly? Well, you know, what's wrong with, with white identity? And, and Russell Roberts said, well, because it's ugly. <laughs> that was the argument. Well, I just don't find that, like, terribly convincing. Like, you know, what's so ugly? Personal competition or, you know, contrary points of view is, like, the most human thing ever. But you'll notice that the news reports everything like some kind of decorous 19th century gentleman who really just want to focus on, you know, the facts of whatever a bureaucracy is issuing. That, you know, they, they want to keep the news essentially as, as boring as possible and to, to speak above it all, you know, above all this, this petty conflict. And I think it's pompous. 
you know, I recognize the business aspect of it. You can you can sell more advertising if you're inoffensive, and if you come across as even-handed, right? Then you can then you can sell a lot more advertising. So all these pigeons here, they want to feed from me, but I've already eaten, and they're not getting anything from me. So all they'll get from me is my wisdom. But this story just kind of you know, points out the, the bureaucratic, above it all, decorous 19th century Victorian gentleman, as, as Tom Wolfe put it, uh, nature of the news, right? So just because the news reports something doesn't mean that it's accurate, important, fair, or, or true. Right, so Stephen Crowder, who I've never paid any attention to, and uh, Ben Shapiro, who I pay very little attention to, right, they're both people on YouTube and social media and their websites, their primary aim is to talk to a 100, 100 IQ audience. And so I just don't find that kind of content interesting. Big Tech is in bed with Big Con. Steven Crowder said in a video this week, complaining about a contract offer he'd received from the Daily Wire without specifically naming the company. Well, Big Tech is in bed with Big Con. Yeah. Yeah, these, these pigeons will not get my vital essence. Yeah, so uh, conservatives, liberals, distance, they're still frequently using big tech. And so staying within the good graces of big tech is often you know, absolutely essential for maintaining a business. All right, so if I, if I compromise some of my habitual wording to accommodate you because I know that you may have various sensitivities about this or that, you know, that's not, you know, that's not a bad thing. Or if I speak differently inside a synagogue than I do inside a bar, that's not a bad thing. And if I speak differently on YouTube than I speak off of YouTube, right, it's not a bad thing. It's not that I'm, you know, I just don't see the accuracy of claiming, oh, no, I'm in bed with, with YouTube, right? When you want to have interactions, sustained interactions with an entity, you normally have to play by their rules. A day after Crowder told his viewers to stop Big Con, The Daily Wire's chief executive, Jeremy Boring, published an hour-long response video detailing the negotiating offer that the conservative media empire sent to Crowder's agent. Boring, besides confirming The Daily Wire had initially offered Crowder $50 million, claimed the podcaster misconstrued and misrepresented many of the details of the potential contract. He also took issue with Crowder accusing his site of doing the bidding of tech companies. So I suspect Steven Crowder didn't run by this contract by an attorney. And I don't think he ran by an attorney his idea of going to make a video about it. So I would say a $50 million uh, contract offer to Steven Crowder by Ben Shapiro's Daily Wire Empire that would strike me as exceedingly generous and that you would just go off on terms of the contract is childish immature it's the very sort of behavior that I would expect from Stephen Crowder even though I know almost nothing about him but to the extent I know anything about Stephen Crowder like childish and immature it seems to sum it up insisting the Daily Wire has also been a victim of big tech's supposed one-sided censorship of conservative voices a former Fox News personality and right-wing comedian Crowder grew in popularity in recent years thanks to his trollish behavior, including meme-worthy, Change My Mind, segments in which he sat outside of college campuses and challenged random people to switch his conservative positions on hot-button topics. 
Eventually, his Louder with Crowder online show was picked up by Glenn Beck's The Blaze and became one of the most popular political podcasts on Spotify and Apple. At the same time, he has regularly courted controversy by gleefully spewing homophobic, racial, and misogynistic slurs on his program. So he's giving an audience what it wants, right? It's not terribly deep, you know, profound commentary. He is speaking to like a 100 IQ, you know, right-wing crowd and uh, entertaining and amusing them, just like Fox News. Prompting YouTube to repeatedly pull advertisements and demonetize his content on the platform. Last month, Crowder announced that he was leaving the blaze after four years, urging his fans, which he refers to as Mug Club, to sign up for updates at his personal site. At the time, he said he had known for months that he wasn't renewing with Beck's empire but had nothing but praise for the right-wing media icon's fiefdom. While no longer with The Blaze, Crowder's show has continued independently, maintaining nearly 6 million YouTube subscribers and tallying more than 1 million subscriptions on Rumble, a YouTube alternative largely catering to right-wing audiences. Can you believe many millions of people subscribe to this, like, low-IQ content? During his Tuesday broadcast, Crowder revealed that an unnamed conservative media company, which viewers quickly deduced to be The Daily Wire, sent him a contract offer. Without mentioning the monetary terms. So it, it's hilarious. They sent him this offer months ago and, and he just decides to go off on it now. Right, so, first of all, when someone sends you a contract offer, like it's, it's usually pretty immature to leak the details. Uh, it's really stupid not to go over it all with, with an attorney. Right? And, and then once you make public this kind of you know, usually private information, you know, other parties are going to be highly, highly reluctant to make any deals with you in the future. 40 sounding a little envious. <laughs> Probably. He knows one's own motivation. We are, we are a mystery even to ourselves, but it, it's just like such a immature move on the part of Stephen Crowder. It's like exactly the type of behavior that you would expect from him. I mean, if you got a question about Jewish law, you know, run it by an expert in Jewish law. If you got a question about biology, run it by a biologist. If you got a question about a legal contract, you know, run it by an attorney. If you got a question about some medical test result, you know, run it by a qualified doctor. Right. To, to just like go public months after receiving this contract you know trying to use right, what he's appealing to is this like really popular narrative on the right about you know how the institutional right has sold out the real right and gotten into bed with the democrats or with this institution or, or that institution it's like such a, a cheap cheap appeal to the, the primitive right-wing sentiments. Crowder groused that the contract included penalties if the show was demonetized, suspended, or removed from any major hosting and video sites. Okay, so just because you recognize economic reality and you know, submit you know, an initial contract uh, calling for you know, a reduction in payouts if the YouTube channel is demonetized, or, or blocked or banned, I mean, seems perfectly reasonable. Again, this is just the first round of negotiation. Like, you go ballistic and leak this, 
If any of the major platforms, e.g. YouTube, Facebook, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, issues a content strike, other than a company-wide content strike, such that Crowder content cannot be monetized on such platform, and the company is not able... So it's really interesting. Uh, hundreds of people on the distant right talk about uh, they can't understand YouTube's terms of service. And then the most perceptive of them, I think Richard Spencer said, only one person can understand YouTube's terms of service, and that's Jean-Francois Garrepi. And Garrepi did a show successfully for years, abiding by YouTube's terms of service. So people are lazy, right? They, they don't want to conform their natural impulses. They don't want to understand uh, terms of service. People naturally in, in almost all relationships just want to think about what's in it for them and they don't spend very much time thinking about the other party. But if you stop thinking about your employer's best interest, you'll soon be out of a job. If you start thinking about what your wife wants, I think you'll soon be out of a wife. If you stop taking your friends or your religious community or you know, your stamp club into consideration, right, you'll soon lose those connections. But it requires going against the grain. Able to resolve the issue within 90 days, then the fee will be reduced by 25% from that point forward. Read one portion of the contract that Crowder shared with his audience. Now, I thought this was a mistake because, you know, these people maybe didn't know who I am, that we've been demonetized for three years, he grumbled. No, it's made very clear to me in no uncertain terms. This is what's sent out to everybody. Crowder then added, Think about this for a second. Those in charge, the big conservative, the big con, and it really is the biggest con going right now. They're making it known in their contracts that they will enforce the guidelines of big tech and punish conservatives on their behalf. While raising alarm over another condition that would penalize him $100,000. Yeah, I think this just raises the, the wider issue that uh, to be effective in the world, you frequently have to constrain and compromise on your own inclinations. Right? You can't speak to your mother the same way you speak to your lover. Right? You can't speak to your boss the same way that you speak to your mates. You can't speak to a client uh, the way you can speak to a stranger on the beach. You can't speak to Americans the same way that you speak to Australians. So to be effective in life, we have to constantly be modulating ourselves depending on the company that we're in. Now that's, yeah, that's the, the courtier approach to morality, taking you know, all different possible audiences into account kind of as opposed to the lord of the manor, traditional morality, where you just say what you think, let the heavens fall. For every contracted episode he doesn't produce, Crowder further blasted the Daily Wire for turning their back on their fellow conservative media brethren and... So, uh, a few weeks ago on Twitter, like Stephen Crowder was, was blasting some contract that he'd received by some Jewish-named you know, individual. And so apparently he's talking about Jerome Boring, the CEO of Daily Wire, who is ironically Christian, right? So the guy is blasting this contract, devious contract that he says he received from someone with a Jewish-sounding name, and it turned out that the contract, you know, was from, from a very non-Jewish Christian. So Gentile, he felt like he was being Gentile down. and joining forces with big tech. We here at Mug Club, we thought that we were all in this together, that we were fighting the media entertainment industrial complex, he fumed. We thought that we were all genuinely taking it to big tech. 
but too many of those in charge of the... So probably what, what makes Crowder compelling is, you know, he's off the cuff and spontaneous. And so, you know, those very qualities of spontaneity, they're great in a comic and they're great in a YouTube commentator. Like if you, like I've looked up tips for live streamers and one of the most common tips is you, you say virtually everything that comes into your brain. That's how you're able to maintain a, a flow, you know, pitter-patter, a live stream to spontaneously talk about everything that's coming into your brain. And that's much more likely to make for success in those spheres of life. But uh, they don't make for success you know, when it comes to negotiating contracts. Right? That's one place where you shouldn't just uh, you know, handle things spontaneously and off the cuff. The big conservative platforms are verifiably in bed with them. Big tech is in bed with big con. The people you thought, the people I thought were fighting for you, a lot of it has been a big con. Oh yeah, you see in the distant right, they're absolutely sure that like Elon Musk and uh, Jeff Bezos and all these other successful Gentile billionaires are really secretly Jews. In his response video posted on Wednesday evening, Boring said he wanted to be transparent with the Daily Wire audience by confirming that Crowder was indeed talking about their contract offer. Methodically detailing the entire contract line by line, Boring rejected the notion that the media company would seek to punish Crowder if... So that is the way to respond to an attack, right? If, if an attack needs a response, then be exhaustive. Like, go through something line by line. If a platform demonetized his channel or advertisers fled the show... At the same time, though, he noted that the language of the contract was standard in order to protect the Daily Wire from shouldering the entire burden of any decreases in ad revenue, especially since the Daily Wire would provide advertisers and sponsors for the program, as Boring pointed out. Stephen's philosophy appears to be, I deserve to be paid millions and millions and millions of dollars whether my show drives the revenue or not. That's not a business relationship, Boring said in his video, he's looking for a benefactor. As for Crowder's complaints about being dinged $100,000. So, yeah, it's a, it's a discipline. It's a challenge trying to, to make it as a news and opinion entity, whether you're a one-man shop or, or a group, all right? It uh, makes it a lot easier to make money if you put out a product that you can put advertising against. And so that requires a certain self-discipline that uh, a lot of you know, live streamers and uh, you know, free thinkers are not necessarily amenable to. For every acceptable episode he isn't able to create, something that Crowder likened to a slave contract. Boring pointed out how this was standard, especially for the amount of money that they were offering the YouTube star. So, yeah, you need whenever you're making any sort of deal, you need to know what's standard. If you're walking into a, a job, taking on responsibility. What is the latest Jordan Peterson drama? So, as I'm not a close follower of Jordan Peterson, but he does not seem to be on a good wicket. does not seem to be on a good track the last uh, few years. Seems to be overly emotional, uh, firing off all sorts of unthoughts through tweets. Like, he, he's an employee of the Daily Wire, yet he fired off a, a tweet supporting Steven Crowder because uh, he apparently... Hadn't, hadn't listened or watched very closely when Crowder explained his problems. Crowder, in his initial rant, failed to mention that he was offered $50 million over four years. 
Furthermore, Boring noted that Crowder would only be contracted to provide 192 episodes a year. So th there's a great rule for life, and that is to speak and behave as though everyone knows everything. I don't fully live up to that rule. I don't fully live up to any of the rules and philosophies and principles and rituals that, that uh, I propound or share. But it's a really good rule. So if you're going to make a video blasting some contract offer, you should do it with the understanding that everyone knows everything. And so you don't try to hide that this contract offer, that, that this is going to come out. You shouldn't try to hide that this contract offer was for $50 million. Right? Most people would be envious of a contract offer like that. I mean, I would certainly make myself amenable to all sorts of uh, restrictions for you know, $50 million. But, you know, Crowder didn't mention that he was offered $50 million. So then when Boring comes out and provides that context, you know, Crowder looks bad. So I don't see any way that Crowder doesn't look terrible in this dispute. A year, equaling out to four 90-minute broadcasts a week, minus a minimum four-week vacation. Crowder could tape broadcasts in advance and then air them later on if he needed time off. After tweeting out Boring's video and saying he wished Crowder nothing but the best, Shapiro addressed the controversy during his Daily Wire program on Thursday. And he essentially doubled down on what Boring had already presented, saying, this is typically how contracts work. Further pointing out that both the Daily Wire and Crowder's show would lose money if it lost advertisers or access to certain platforms, Shapiro explained that this is how a joint venture works before taking issue with Crowder's accusations. There is something rather nasty about attacking people who have been friends for over a decade, colleagues, defenders, for over a decade, on the basis of your own misinterpretation of a document that often... It seems to be very hard for many of us to remain friends in the in the commentary business. I, I think something about the personality that is attracted to doing something like what I'm doing right now, there, there tends to be a volatility element, a spontaneous element to uh, this, this type of personality, which then tends to militate against the maintenance of friendship. So that the Crowder would do this against people with whom he'd been on friendly terms for, for a decade. Uh, Ill-advised. Now, I think there are absolutely you know, things that you should stand for and, and speak out on, even if it will cost you friends. So I am not someone to say friendship over Alice, though I do admire people who've never lost a friend. But I mean, for, from my own life experience, I'm just changing my mind so often about so many different things that it, you know, often my friends have felt, you know, whiplash and it's just like, ah, oh, it's just too much, too many externalities to my relationship with 40 to deal with like all these, you know, latest ideological and life changes. For you $50 million over the course of four years, Shapiro concluded. Finally, with much of Crowder's criticism focused on YouTube demonetization and the ongoing issues his program has had with that, Boring insisted that any terms related to that in the initial contract offering would have likely just been scratched out in the second draft. In the end, Boring said that the public dispute with Crowder was one of the saddest things he has had to face. This is not the first time Crowder's penchant for criticizing right-wing media peers has gotten him into some trouble. In 2013, he was not renewed by Fox News after publicly ridiculing star host Sean Hannity. Meanwhile, one of the Daily Wire's biggest stars briefly, and likely inadvertently, ended up siding with Crowder amid the increasingly heated feud. 
clinical psychologist and far-right provocateur Jordan Peterson, who recently became a Daily Wire podcaster, tweeted out Crowder's video while telling his followers that it was on the hypocrisy of the conservative legacy media. The tweet was soon taken down. So I really try to stay out of feuds because you don't think clearly when you get into a feud. I also try to stay out of fights because you never know how much they're going to escalate. Oh, College of Psychologists versus Jordan Peterson. So yeah, the YouTube algorithm does bombard you with Jordan Peterson. He is YouTube's acceptable conservative. So yeah, College of Psychologists wants Jordan Peterson re-educated and disciplined for and not using preferred pronouns and other violations of political correctness. So this is one area where I'm entirely on, on the side of Jordan Peterson. Almost all our institutions, including the College of uh, Psychologists, has been taken over by the left. So yeah, right there I stand, I stand with Jordan. Right, interesting substack here. Steve Saylor was talking about it, why the media is honest and good. How to critique the press without devolving into nihilism. This is Richard Hananya. And he begins with, I tend to get annoyed by those around me. So yeah, he doesn't seem to be really high in the trait of agreeableness. Most of my adult life I spent in academic institutions. I think he has a couple of PhDs. And this has created in him a revulsion toward the work. Okay, but anywhere that... Uh, yeah, Stephen Crowder's pretty dorky, pandering and middling even by cringe con conservatives yeah i just never never uh never engaged in in his content so now richard ananya spent a lot of time most of his adult life in universities he finds he doesn't like universities and university people now over the past two years he spent more and more times with conservatives and now he finds he really doesn't like conservatives and uh, Richard Ananya says, most writers have to worry about audience capture, but for me it's the opposite. When I see what those around me think, I have to struggle not to get consumed by all the ways in which they're wrong about the world. And says, if you spend any time among conservatives, you will before long realize that few things get them as riled up as a chance to attack the media. Okay, so... Hanania here is operating at a fairly surface level of analysis. What, what gets conservatives riled up is that almost all institutions are in the hands of the left. And so how do you know, oppressed peoples, people you know, without power, you know, how do they react? Do they primarily make you know, cogent, rational analyses you know, designed to you know, speak to as broad an audience as possible? No. When you understand that uh, conservatives feel like you know all the institutions are in the hands of their enemies, that the playing field is tilted, right? People don't tend to react to that you know calmly. Now, it can be much more effective at times to be calm, and you can often think more clearly from a calm place. So I'm all on board with the calm, but because conservatives get riled up because they feel like the playing field is tilted against them, and that all the primary institutions are tilted against them. Uh, that's understandable and it's revolutionary and it, it, it can be effective, right? So emotional intensity is 
widely perceived as a good indicator of truth. And so the emotional intensity the conservatives feel about the playing field being tilted against them, about almost all the institutions being dominated by the left, and I think that's genuine. It comes from, from a true place, and it's, it's realistic and it's understandable. And many of the critiques from this angry place are not coherent and they're not particularly cogent and they're not always high IQ, and they're not always thoughtful and deep. But you know, which peoples, when all institutions seem to be in the hands of their enemies, are going to be you know, particularly calm, considered rational and cogent? And that's not normally how people operate. Okay, so so Hananya says in this article, why why do I hate pronouns more than genocide? And he's making the argument that, that for liberals, yeah, theoretically they hate genocide more than misuse of people's personal pronouns, but in real life, right, uh, liberals tend to be much less emotional about genocide than they are against homophobia, sexual harassment, or cops pulling over a disproportionate number of black men. So you can really gauge people's true motivations, not just by what they say, but by what they seem to have their strongest emotional reaction to. That's how you often divine what they hold as sacred. So for the left, opposing various forms of bigotry and what they see as you know, not useful traditional approaches to life is the very center of their moral universe. So, so people on the right, the center of their modern uni moral universe is maintaining or creating order and warding off contagion, right? That's at the center of the, the conservative moral universe for the left. It is warding off ignorance and bigotry. And one of the easiest ways you can tell if someone's conservative or left-wing is ask them, do you think the past was better? So most American conservatives think that America was a much more moral place 20, 30, 40, 50, 100 years ago than it is now. So anyone, anyone who says that the past is better, the odds are 90%, over 90% that they're conservative. That's probably more predictive than any other single question that you can ask someone. So a conservative believes that uh, traditional ways of organizing a life, organizing a family, and organizing a community are better than untested ways. Now, what is the equivalent of liberals' hatred of bigotry? So Richard Ananya says, for conservatives, is clearly hatred of the left. And I think he's just operating at a surface level. It is hatred of the fact of life that the left controls almost all institutions and dominates the means of cultural production. So Hananya goes into you know, how much conservatives hate the news media and how they exaggerate the news media's flaws. And then he argues that everyone on the right is wrong about this. The media is actually good and honest. We should be glad it exists. And uh, the media really tells explicit lies. And uh, the media has serious flaws, but it's one of the most honest, decent, fair institutions designed for producing and spreading truth in human history. So I wouldn't go as far as, as Hananya. I, I think it's just important to understand institutions and individuals in terms of their genre. So the genre of the news media is telling you what bureaucracies have decided.
but that's the genre of news. It is telling you what institutions have assembled, provided, dictated, right? And institutions are primarily in the hands of the left. So right now, what what these bureaucracies, which are primarily in the hands of the left, what, what they come out with, right, is going to be from a left-wing perspective on life. So if you understand the genre that the news media is operating in, then you don't have to be you know, as upset and angry, right? So the legal profession is dominated by the left. The medical profession is increasingly dominated by the left. Forty years ago, the medical profession was dominated by the right in its opposition to socialized medicine. But now the legal profession is dominated by the left. I would assume dentists and accountants are also dominated by the left. Universities are dominated by the left. The NGOs are dominated by the left. And so government bureaucracies and leading civil servants are primarily of the left. And so whatever these institutions and individuals release to the news, all right, that's going to be dominantly from the left because of the left has captured these institutions. And so when you understand that's the genre that the news media is operating in, just like Stephen Crowder's genre is a 100 IQ comedy for conservatives. And so you shouldn't, you shouldn't expect anything else. Yeah, unions are dominated by the left. Uh, much of the military is dominated by the left. Significant parts of law enforcement is dominated by the left. So when these left-wing dominated institutions make the pronouncements that then compose your evening news bulletin or your morning newspaper, it's not surprising that they come to these things with, with a left-wing view of the world. Uh, that's, that's simply the genre that you know, they're working in. It's a business model that you... Oh, look at that! Look at that! that! That pigeon is grabbing the neck of that other pigeon. Oh, we've got, we got pigeon-on-pigeon pigeon violence here. That was savage. Why do pigeons have to be so ugly? Oh, wow, there's that one pigeon. He's only got one foot. Does he only have one foot? I mean, he's probably being discriminated against by all these, you know, two, two footed, feeted, two feet pigeons. Man, did you see that, the viciousness of that attack? Why does it have to get so ugly and personal? Right, and also what uh, tends to lead the news is conflict because conflict attracts eyeballs. If it bleeds, it leads. Ah, so most of the pigeons have two feet, but I see at least one there with just one foot. Right would still be asleep if it weren't for name-calling and demonizing of whites and conservatives always calling us Nazis. Yeah, so there's certainly a considerable element of the right that simply wants to do their jobs, spend time with family, you know, participate in their community and in their organized religion. But all they want to do is cling to their to their guns and religion, but the ever-increasing inroads of the left ever wanting to educate, right? So the, the left-wing center of the left-wing moral universe is to fight against you know, bigotry and ignorance. And so this continual crusade to educate people, right, it gets on the nerves of people on the right. Wow, I'm sorry that you had to be witness to that ugly seagull-on-seagull -seagull violence, man. Just very uncalled for. Why can't we just all get along here?
It's almost like nature is red in tooth and claw. Now we've got another species coming along. So another thing I'm noticing is don't find multiple versions of the same subspecies, you know, living happily together. In, in the world of nature, one subspecies tends to dominate a particular geographic region, wipes out the other subspecies. Well, they're all in the same gang, but uh, I'm just witnessing the violence inherent in the system. So that big bird over there, that's... Australians don't really like that bird. I've forgotten the name of it, the one with the big long beak. But it's like a super predator. It's like really good at picking food out of trash. It like dominates parks. It's all over Sydney. Okay, we finally got some, some peace. Alright, so Hananya says if you if you judge the mainstream media by historical standards, the right then the institutions of American journalism come out looking extremely well. Well, yeah, American journalists tend to be more accurate and say more ethical than European journalists who are, are more partisan. The major exception is when it comes to the holy trinity of liberalism, topics having to do with race and sex, right? Race, race, gender, race, gender, race, sex, class, right? That, that used to be the holy trinity of the left. Now it's uh, race, gender, sexual orientation. So it's not so much that the press is blinded by ideology. The facts they give you on these sensitive topics are usually correct. It's usually interpretation of these facts is wrong. So yeah, you normally get a left-wing narrative when you tune into the mainstream media. But usually the, the facts the facts are accurate. Now, those who criticize Western civilization or capitalism tend to be very good at finding flaws, but bad at keeping those flaws in perspective, right? And that's also true with right-wing you know, right criticisms of news media, like compared to which country has you know, better, more accurate, more fair news media. So people who complain about the media tend to implicitly judge it by the standard of perfection. So they either offer no alternative or argue that people should instead listen to sources that are even worse. So it's easy to list news media mistakes such as Iraq contains weapons of mass destruction, Russiagate, uh, narratives concerning police shootings of young black men, Black Lives Matter, right? But there are all sorts of institutions you know, that are getting things right. So remember... It, a year ago at this time, the news media was telling us that Russia was about to invade Ukraine. They were right about that. Uh, a lot of times that uh, the mainstream media has been right and the, the distance has been, been wrong. So, yeah, a lot of the news media's coverage of coronavirus has been bad, but compared to what? Like, is, you know, Alex Berenson, who, Richard Ananya states, leaves literally every random in the random person in the world who drops dead as evidence that vaccines are dangerous. Now, there are things where Berenson's been right and where the media's been wrong. But if you're going to look at the overall record, there's no comparison. Any reporting, mostly manipulation or group identifying labeling is not good, says Freak. So the right-wing press is more biased, less honest, less competent than those they wish to replace. I wish that wasn't true, but that is accurate. Because smart people, even smart conservatives, take reporting in the New York Times more seriously 
what is said in right-wing news sites. So most right-wing news sites are already preaching to the converted. So they don't work as hard to provide a case that people who don't share their ideology would, uh, would be able to take in. So yeah, you can list off all the lies in the New York Times, everything they get wrong, but you could also do the same for Rush Limbaugh or Mark Levin or the Breitbart website. And so if you take this posture towards the mainstream media that they're terrible, they should be ignored, well, what do you, what do you replace it with? It's like someone who spends a lot of time complaining about capitalism, but then what's the alternative, chaos or, or socialism? And Hananya says 80% of news reporting is done by liberal writers and liberal institutions. Hananya says my readership is overwhelmingly right-wing, just like my viewership is overwhelmingly right-wing. But most news sources that I check, most of my news reading is done on left-wing websites, and so too with Hananya. And he says, I link to so many left-wing news sites because there's not that much great reporting being done by conservatives. No matter how conservative you are, if you want to know what's going on in the world, right, you really have to seek out liberal reporters and liberal institutions. So your choices are either rely on leftists to be informed or to live in ignorance. Okay, that is overstating the case. Right? The news media is telling you what bureaucracies decide and report. Carl Rittenhouse case was a good example. Somehow they equated him with racist Nazi right-wing political group who's 17 years old. No one knows politics at that age. So you will frequently get you know, more profound understanding of the world from your uncle, or from a store owner, from a stranger in the park than you will from the evening news. So it's not like if you avoid consuming the news, you're going to be ignorant about the world. Right? You could instead you know, join a volunteer organization you could join a church or a synagogue, you could read books, right? There are a lot of ways about becoming more informed in the world. So I, I don't view abstaining from consumption of news as you know, choosing to, to remain ignorant of the world. I don't think that is fair. I don't think that is accurate. That's where I disagree with Richard Hanania. Okay. Here is Misha Saul, Sydney podcaster, talking with Razib Khan about genetics and the history of the Jews. And this conversation took place party, November uh, 21. Much of their history before they were totally marginalized in some areas is that they were well integrated to the broader culture. They contributed to it. They took from it. Uh, they didn't like live simply as like a people. You could commiserate with Steve Saylor about being subjected to the COVID and vaccine truthers and the anti-vaccine types. Yeah. I think that that is a low IQ response by people on the right. I understand the instinctive revulsion against getting vaccinated, but it is a low IQ response when overwhelmingly the evidence is that it's far more dangerous to be unvaccinated than to be vaccinated with regard to COVID and many other things. Talking about vaccines approved for use in the United States part uh, from the nations, you know? Um, and so that's a notable thing. Now, you could take this too far, and so this is what you uh, wanted me to address. Um, so I did mention several Jewish communities, I mean, particularly the Jews of Kaifeng, um, our well-known Jewish community. Uh, they were first uh, rediscovered uh, by Matteo Ricci, Roman Catholic missionary, in the 1600s, and when he first encounters them, 
Um, he knows that they are physically distinct from the Han Chinese, uh, but their their level of learning is quite low, low enough that the leader of the community, the de facto rabbi, uh, actually offered Ricci uh, the position of rabbi if he, uh, you know, would give up pork and, you know, accept their religion. And, and Ricci was like, obviously said no, but um, he looked at their scriptures. He looked at their scriptures and he's like, okay, like this is obviously the Tanakh. Um, you have the Hebrew Bible. This is what you have. You are Jews, you know, because in China at the time, it wasn't quite clear um, the Chinese weren't clear if these were Muslims or a particular sect of Muslims, because they didn't eat pork, they had that. Many non-Jews just think Jews are a collective, but Jews in Kaifeng, right, 17th century, like very, very different from Jews in Lithuania, say, or Poland, or Germany, or England. Terry restrictions, they wore caps, they worshipped one god. Seems like it, all, it, all, it all looks the same from yeah. from, from a Chinese perspective. All these dudes are Abrahamic religions. Like, yeah. what's the difference? Yeah, yeah that's exactly that's exactly like what's the difference? Right. So, as a convert to Judaism, I see all these you know infinite variety of Jews and how different they are. But yeah, from a Chinese perspective, Jews, Christians, Muslims are all just you know part of Abrahamic religions. It's like that's exactly what you can see in the annals. Like, where it's like the Chinese are trying to figure out like why these you know Jews think that they're different than these Muslims. And so the Kaifeng Jews, like, um, they are recorded over several centuries, mostly by Europeans who are taking interest in them. And you see successive stages of assimilation, so that by the that by the um, 1800s, uh, European observers say that they look just, they look Chinese, they've intermarried, um, you know, they go and visit these Jews, and leaders of the community are embarrassed because their Han Chinese wives are... Re- so you can't live among a much bigger people and not, you know, start to assimilate in, in various ways, so... Jews in England are tend to be the most polite Jews in the world because the English are so polite. Uh, Jews in Germany uh, tend to value secular education because non-Jewish Germans value secular education. So Jews tend to take on many of the, the traits, the, the attitudes, the manners of dress, of speech, and even physiognomy of the, the wider culture pigs on their property and they know that the europeans will kind of be like what kind of jew are you you know they probably didn't normally care but they probably were just like a little embarrassed because they knew technically they shouldn't probably be having pigs raised for food on their property you know, um yeah I, a similar so soviet jews um i don't want to tarnish people unfairly and, and i'm sure there's a broad range but soviet jews are kind of famous for something similar where um i'll give you an anecdote which kind of illustrates so so obviously after this uh, club soviet union and also the successive waves of soviet immigrants before then both to israel and australia and the u.s and, and, and whatever and they tend to be kind of um you know poorer and uh, and more assimilated than um than other kind of jewish communities and my, my rabbi recently um, he's a chabad he's an orthodox uh, rabbi he told me a story where a couple of years ago he was invited to um attend a, a yom kippur uh fast breaking at a soviet community hall or whatever in, in, in sydney and they said but rabbi you've just got to be understanding of the soviet jewish way of doing things there'll be some pork and stuff like that <laughs> and he said like, well, what are you talking about of course i'm not gonna attend that that's totally crazy and so look i'm sure there are also kind of religious observant soviets but mm. but they, they are kind of um famous uh for that so that's a, it's a funny analogy yeah i mean you know it com- so Jews in the southern United States right, got along really well, generally speaking, with the non-Jews. And they also heavily assimilated into non-Jewish ways, including frequently eating pork. Uh, no rabbi in the American South prior to the Civil War spoke up against slavery. So Jews have a much harder time maintaining their their very distinctive ways when they are primarily living amongst themselves. It's a lot harder to live 
Orthodox Judaism when you live outside an organized, cohesive, strong Jewish community, when you live outside the shtetl. He's like, oh, I, can't, I, can't, I can't, I can't anymore. And then, like, he looks at me, he comes right back, he's like, is that lamb? And then the guy's like, yes. He's like, okay, I'll have some of that. So, so like, you know, <laughs> they can be, like, very pragmatic, you know? And so, but, but this is the problem. Okay, I think we, we missed... You missed this anecdote. Okay, let me get this anecdote. Cultural, cultural assimilation is, so I'll give you a non-Jewish example. So like there's a famous like story of like, like how assimilated are Chinese Muslims. And so there's a story of like a Chinese Muslim guy and he sees like, you know, roadside barbecue, he's hungry. And he's like, um, is that lamb? And the Chinese guy, the, you know, the, the guy's like, no, it's pork. And he's like, ah. Oh. And then he comes back a minute later, he's like, is that lamb? And he's like, no, it's pork. He's like, oh, I can't, I can't, I can't, I can't eat pork. And then, like, he looks at and he comes right back. He's like, is that lamb? And then the guy's like, yes. He's like, okay, I'll have some of that. So, so like, you know, they can be, like, very pragmatic, you know? And so, but, but this is the... So, the, that, that story reminds me of a precept in, in Judaism that if you don't know that what you're eating is not kosher, then it's, it's not a sin. So, if someone... You, know, you have every reason to believe that they're an observant Jew and they give you that something that they say is, is lamb and you have every reason to believe that it's lamb and that it's kosher and it turns out to be pig, you have not committed a sin. problem with pragmatism in the East, so uh, the argument that I make and other people have made is that the special role of Jews in the uh, you know, religious history, religious frame of Christianity and Islam actually helped to perpetuate the religion as it was from, say, the 6th century AD, where the Babylonian Talmud is, is, is you know, pretty much complete or, you know, in its present form, um, down to the present. Whereas in India, you do have Jewish communities that last into modernity, but I just told you the story of the Ben of Israel, where it seems like they were actually on the verge of getting assimilated, but contacts with Middle Eastern Jews, because the Pardesi Jews are mostly Middle Eastern in origin from Cochin, um, Revive their so revive their Judaism. So their Judaism is partly conditional on their interaction with the West Asian Jewish matrix. In Kaifeng, there were almost certainly Persian Jews from the Radhanite communities, uh, probably during, I mean, at the latest the Mongol period, perhaps earlier. And they kept their identity for a while, but the fundamental reality is without being connected to the greater Jewish world, they were getting assimilated and swallowed. And this happens to most, you know, in China, it happens a lot. So Australian Jews. You know, compared to New York Jews, tend to be highly assimilated, except where you've got a strong, cohesive Jewish, traditional Jewish community in Melbourne. So Melbourne Jews tend to come from Eastern Europe. Uh, Sydney Jews tend to come from Western Europe and England. So Western European and English Jews tend to be much more assimilated to the ways of non-Jews than Eastern European Jews. It happens to Muslims too, uh, like underreported, but there's obviously a lot of Muslims who, uh, of like West Asian heritage, who got assimilated to Northern Chinese Han culture. A lot of them still remain, but I mean, these are, you know, these are the ones that remain. And so um, I think in Christianity, it's actually quite explicit where some of the church fathers, like St. Augustine said, okay, so the pagans, they are in error. We need to convert them forcibly, you know, so they won't go to hell. But the Jews, um, they have the covenant with God. And it's up to God during the resurrection, you know, when Jesus comes back to actually convert them. Like, this is not, it's not our job. We let the Jews stay, do whatever they want to. If they want to come to Christ by their own will, that's good. But we're not going to force them. And so this was kind of like the understanding of the Christian church, even though this was violated. Yeah, this was the dominant approach of the Christian church to the Jews for know, about 1,600 years after Augustine, with, you know, occasional violent exceptions. It, quite often, in particular by secular rulers, you know, Ferdinand and Isabella, I mean, 
you know, they didn't, they let the Jews go. So by the letter of the law, maybe, you know, the ones who wanted to go, they let go without anything except clothes on their back, but whatever, technically they didn't force them, you know? And so that's, that's the rule of Christianity and Islam. You family have the Demi, famously have the Demi system where religious minorities or subordinate groups are allowed to practice their religion as long as they practice, you know, pay the tax. So I think um, these systems in, in the West, in the Middle East. And, and this is true for you and me, like if we know our level, like in an interaction or in a community, all right, then we're not going to upset people. And if we don't know our level, I remember this attractive woman who converted to Judaism and she complained, Jewish men don't know their level. Their Jews tend to have a lot of self-confidence. Jews tend to have, you know, fairly high self-esteem. Uh, many of them raised with the idea that by their mothers that they can achieve great things. And so they often, you know, try for women who are not on their level. Europe allowed for the maintenance and persistence of Jewish communities. Um, and some of these Jewish communities in the Middle East, they've been there since almost the beginning. Like the Iraqi Jews, the Syrian Jews before the arrival of the Sephardim, they've just been there forever, just like some of these communities like Assyrian Christians, Armenians. Um, there's just like a whole setup for these like ethnic minorities, ethnic groups, ethno-religious cultural groups continuing forever in, in Western Eurasia. Um, with Jews in Eastern Eurasia, it's a little different. The Chinese tend to be absorbative. In India, they don't necessarily absorb, but they integrate you as a caste. And what tends to happen is... So this is uh, Razib Khan, the genetics blogger. I like that, how he describes the Chinese tend to absorb you and the, the Indians absorb you, but as a separate caste. Um, communities, religious groups that are very different over time become more and more like Hindus. And so like with Christians and with Jews and Parsis, their connection to West Asia kept them from becoming totally like Hindus. But if you get into the anthropology and the ethnography, it's quite clear that Indian cultural norms creep in and start replacing um, whatever is distinct about the other groups. Which, which makes sense. So I suppose... That so how do you survive as a tiny minority people? All right. For thousands of years, like I don't think any group has survived as a tiny minority living in a diaspora for 2,500 years like the Jews have. And the way that you do it is by continually reminding yourself of the differences between the Jewish ways of doing things and the and the non-Jewish ways, and saying essentially that the you know, the Jewish ways are superior. And that's the only way to maintain. Uh, strong in-group identity as if you're continually reminding each other look this is the out-group way of doing things we have the in-group way of doing things of seeing things of describing things and we, our in-group way is better so any in-group that's going to survive has to be continually making these generally negative comparisons between how the in-group does things as opposed to how the outgroup does that. So it's a very broad spectrum of stories around the world, ranging from high levels of distinctiveness through to general assimilation and kind of in between with like on the verge that, you know, like the like you mentioned Bene Israel and maybe Ethiopian Jews are another example of that. Um, like that kind of uh, then find their, their, their way back. And I think you said that you had a really nice point in um, one, one of your pieces around, you know, maybe um, the Ashkenazim and the Sephardim were in this kind of liminal, you know, space of kind of persecution so the pigeons are getting a good feed next door without any respect for my podcast, man. Yeah, well, I mean... I mean, so one of the issues is, I mean, why would you not leave Judaism if you're, if you're Islamic 
more the Christian world. Well, one reason you would leave Judaism is like you leave Judaism, and unless you have a soft. So people don't just join or leave a religion primarily for ideological reasons. So, in my experience, my movement was primarily ideological. Like I became convinced that uh, Judaism was, in the final analysis, the author of Judaism was God. Right? I believe that you know one true God, the, the creator of heaven and earth, had a special connection with the Jewish people that he gave them a Torah. And you know, I wanted to be a part of this you know, divine thing. Sorry, yeah, the birds are way too loud, man. I'm trying to produce this high-quality show. So I didn't you know, convert to Judaism for... You know, to get married for pragmatic social reasons is overwhelmingly an ideological move. But most people you know, are going to move in and out of religion. Or they're going to dial their religion up in intensity or dial it down in intensity in their life you know, for pragmatic reasons. So just like you don't need to always cut people off in your life, uh, you can just dial people up or down in your life and you can do the same with your religious commitment. So. If uh, your religion's not working for you, you can pragmatically you know, decrease the number of times that you engage with it. You can decrease the intensity with which you engage. You can decrease the proximity, so you may just you know, take it in over the internet instead of in person. And you can decrease the length of time. So instead of going to the synagogue for three hours on Saturday morning, you might just go for an hour. And so to people. Right? You can dial people up or down in your life, depending on whether or not they're good for you, by changing the frequency, the intensity, the duration, and the proximity of your interactions with them. But for most people, these are going to be primarily their pragmatic considerations. More like high-profile Jewish conference, you know all of those, right? Um, but uh, you're going to lose your old community, and is the new community going to totally accept you? So, I mean, so usually when someone changes a religion, and including me, they have a whole lot of neuroticism going on in their life. Neuroticism means that you like feeling negative of feelings really intensely. So usually if someone converts to a new religion, it's because they were ill at ease with themselves, with their original religion, original community, and original family, and they think that if they just join a new religion, new community, that they can just you know, life will get a lot easier. The, you know, their problems were just due to their family, you know, the, their initial community, their religion. If they can just change things, everything will go better. Conversion for ulterior motives such as marriage is holistically invalid, and yet there are many different perspectives on this. That's not just the one perspective. So if you check uh, responsive literature, all right, very orthodox rabbis are conducting conversions which are primarily for the case of marriage all the time. So, Judaism is a very complicated thing. But, uh, yeah, I grew up you know, feeling ill at ease with myself, sometimes ill at ease with my parents, with my community, with my religion. And I had all sorts of illusions that you know, if I just joined this new religion, the one true religion, that then I'd finally feel at ease because I would be connecting myself with the, the master of the universe. But the primary reasons that I was feeling ill at ease in life with myself, with other people, all right, were not because of religion. All right, I was asking a religious change to do things for me that it, that it wasn't really cut out to do.
which is why many rabbis, when they encounter someone who wants to convert to Judaism, they detect that there's something you know, psychologically wrong with them. They'll either you know, forbid them from converting, you know, refuse them from converting, or insist that they get into psychotherapy, which happened to an ex-girlfriend of mine. Now, we know the conversos, they're called Moranos, they're called pigs, you know? Uh, they're still kind of viewed as Jews. And so, like, you might be in the worst of all worlds here, and so I think that there's an incentive there to stay within the Jewish community, uh, because if you alienate yourself, that's a really high-risk move. Now, if you're... Yeah, generally speaking, if you move from one religion to another, you'll be in the worst of all possible worlds, because you'll have alienated yourself from the religion you came from, and you won't be fully accepted into the religion you converted. Now, luckily for me, Jews are an excellent psychological fit. Like, I like the intense, hard-on-the-sleeve competitive nature of Jewish life. Back on it, there's a whole world out there that doesn't care what your past was. And, and so, is there, was there a separate um, Chinese ancient Jewish community in Shanghai? I know there's a modern one with the Sassoons and the like okay. um, that kind of migrated there, but do you know much about that history? So I don't, yeah, I wasn't in Shanghai, so there were... So David Sassoon and the Sassoons were the world's biggest uh, drug dealers in the 19th century. You know, they dominated opium trafficking. They had an exclusive deal with the East India Company to sell opium in, in China and, and Japan and you know, all throughout Asia. And then David Sassoon, I believe, he had about seven sons and he sent them to you know, various parts of his empire. And then much of his family ended up moving to England. And in England in the late 19th century, it was considered... You know, far more disreputable to make your money from the stock market than to make your money from opium. So I have a Chinese ancestor who was a merchant in Rockhampton, and uh, one of the one of the products that he dealt in was was opium. So in the 19th century, opium was considered acceptable. Muslims, Jews, and Christians, I think, in uh, in Guangdong, uh, in what is today Canton, you know, in Guangzhou, um, and this community. Anyway, there's a great new book out on the Sassoons from an academic perspective. It's the first academic comprehensive survey of the Sassoon family. It's excellent. These communities were exterminated in the 9th century AD uh, during, uh, uh, basically during like a civil war in China. Uh, the, the port of Guangzhou was known to have a lot of West Asians of various religions, Manichaeans as well, all sorts of religions, uh, a lot of Muslims, Christians, Nestorian Christians often, and Jews. And so, you know, there have been like Look, it's quite clear to me just from like telltale genetic evidence that it's probably been Jews in a lot of different places that got absorbed. So, for example, I bring up in my piece, like, you know, the Lemba of Zimbabwe are a subgroup of the Shona who seem to have some Jewish practices, especially their priestly class. They're shamanic. They're converted to Christianity mostly now, but they're originally shamanic. They become pagan, but were pagan always, so they're not, you know. But um, they're white chromosome in their priestly class. So there are historians who claim there are as many as 10 million Jews uh, 2,000 years ago at... Uh the time of, of Jesus. Now, there's evidence that that number is highly dubious, but if, if that, that 10 million had reproduced at a normal rate, then you know virtually everyone in the world today would be Jewish. So how do you go from 10 million 2,000 years ago to 14 million today, a lot of, uh, a lot of persecution? But um, their white chromosome and their priestly class, clearly, they have, it looks like they have co-modal haplotype. Now, co-modal haplotype is found outside of Jews, okay, in the Middle East. Now, is that because they're former Jews, or is that because Jews come out of just the broader Middle East? We don't know for sure. So we know that the Lemba of Zimbabwe have some practices that seem Abrahamic, um, that seem almost Jewish, 
And we know that the priestly class, the males, seem to have Y chromosomes that are from the Middle East. So are these like a lost Jewish tribe, like a group of Jewish merchants, somehow were like on the coast of Mozambique and they made their way inland? Um, that sounds crazy, but I think we know enough about genetics now that that's not totally crazy. Um, I think it's possible. It's probably still more likely that they were Yemeni or they were Muslim or something. The only reason that I think maybe they weren't is, well, if they were Muslim, why didn't they just stay Muslim? Because the Muslims had a huge Indian Ocean network. Like, I mean, they, they could have been connected to other Muslims, right? With Jews, it makes a little bit more sense because their trade networks were more tenuous in the Indian Ocean, and they would have lost touch with other Jews. And once you lose touch with other Jews, uh, you need to have a really large basal population before you're not together. I mean, look, in the United States, there's a lot of Jews, and assimilation is happening. Mm. You know, I'm sure you can see the same in Australia, right? I know. It's a, it's a huge, um, it, it's very front of mind for, for Jewish communities in the U.S. And, and here. So tell me about the Yemeni Jews. Yeah, it's, so it's, it's a different case. It's fascinating. It's, it is a different case. And this is like kind of like has caused a little bit of controversy. And I've had to like do a follow up blog post on this too. Because it was kind of like I didn't address the genetics in explicit detail. So the Yemeni Jews, they look like people from Southern Arabia. So Yemeni Jews have this folklore that they are the true Jews, that they're you know, descended from, I guess, uh, King David and King Solomon. Uh, no genetic evidence for these claims. Arabia that have almost no African ancestry compared to the Yemeni neighbors. Um, so they don't actually look like they're from the northern Levant, right? They, they don't look like they're, they're Levantine or Mesopotamian. They look South Arabian. And so in their genome-wide clustering, um, like when I've done the analyses, they look like samples from Saudi Arabia, some samples from Yemen, uh, basically Arabian. And so where are they from? Um, we know that there were kings of Himyar, um, the kingdom in Yemen who converted to Judaism in the 4th century, 5th century. Eventually, they were conquered by the Ethiopians. So the claims that groups make for themselves, right, not always backed up by evidence. So if you feel very emotionally attached to the claims that your group makes, right, that you're dealing then with something that's sacred in your, in your hero system. And anything that's sacred, you then become blind to, you can't see objectively conquered by the Ethiopians and the region became Muslim, right? And so the hypothesis that I presented in, in the post is that the Yemeni Jews descend from converts from the Himyarite kingdom period. Now, some Yemeni Jews have taken objection to that and said that it dates to older and, you know, they have lineages to the ancient Jews. Like, to be entirely frank, like, I don't really care either way. Genetically, I don't see any evidence of that, but it could be possible. Uh, but they really want us, they really, I mean, like... So Razi Khan's not Jewish, right? He doesn't care either way. He's just following the truth wherever it leads as opposed to you many Jews who, you know, very strong emotional connection to a particular story about their ancestors. They really, I mean, like, they, some people got really angry at me and were just like, oh, you know, well, we're descended from the ancient Judeans. And I'm just like, who cares if you're descended from the ancient Judeans? I'm, I'm amazed you have Yemeni Jews, um, you know, that prominently kind of reading and objecting to, to your stuff. But uh, Yeah, um, so no, but, yeah. No, but they just kind of summarize this point. You're basically saying that their, their elites and their kings basically did uh, convert to Judaism. And that that's was not Judaism. And that's a Judaizing feature of um, the Yemenites. And yeah. So they're not actually descendant of... It's been said by scholars that the Hebrew Yemenite Jews speak the Hebrew that's closest to the ancient form of the language. But yeah, how can they know it? I, I suspect we're dealing with folk tales and folk traditions here rather than real scholarship. They don't, they don't look like they have Northern Middle Eastern ancestry. They look like Saudis that have no African ancestry. So what does that tell you? Like, they're, they're Arabs. I mean, they're South Arabian. Like, that's what you would call them. Whoa, whoa, whoa. He's, he's noticing, man. He's like, he's looking at how people look, and he's making judgments about ancestors. Gosh, I'm, I'm not sure we're, we're allowed to do this anymore, are we? They didn't speak Arabic originally, probably, because the Yemeni, the Sabian languages were different. I mean, the, the point I want to make is, obviously, you, you can tell a great deal about someone by how they look, all right? 
just if someone's male as opposed to female, right, they're 10 or 20 more times likely to commit you know, an act of violence against you. And if they're young, right, if they're teenagers as opposed to in their 70s, right, again, they're far more likely to you know, commit an act of violence against you. So yeah, you can tell a tremendous deal about people, individuals, and groups just by looking at what they look like. We're different, right? And there's still some of those around. So, you know, they weren't like Arabic speaking because modern Arabic is more from Nabatea, like that's a separate issue. But they look like indigenous people in the south, from the southern half of the Arabian Peninsula genetically. Uh, unlike, you know, like Ashkenazi Jews have Middle Eastern ancestry, it looks like it's from like the Fertile Crescent, okay? Uh, it looks like Assyrian Christians, for example. Like that would be a good proxy, you know? Um, Yemenite Jews, they cluster on the tree with Saudis. They, they look like Yemenites without African ancestry because the Yemenite Muslims have a lot of African ancestry because of slavery. Well, you know, Jews and Christians in the northern Middle East, they couldn't have slaves. And so they tend not to have African ancestry. There's a little, there is actually a little bit of African ancestry in the Yemenite Jews, but it's well mixed in, which indicates that this is just like old African ancestry from antiquity. But um, it. It, that's actually true with Ashkenazi Jews too. They have a little bit from the Middle East. Sweet. So tell me about the Khazars. Yeah, yeah. So the Khazars, I think, like, was it Judah, uh, Judah Halevi? I forget. Well, so there was a medieval Jewish, I think he's Sephardic Spanish, uh, um, commentator, scholar, and uh, he was the one who reported on this. And the Khazars are a Turkic group, uh, obviously from Eastern Asia, who were dominant um, in modern-day Ukraine, into the Volga region. And they ruled over a confederacy of Iranian and Slavic-speaking groups. And um, they were allied with the Byzantine Empire. There were actually multiple Byzantine emperors with Khazar ancestry. So uh, their mothers were Khazar. In any case, um, the Khazars were pagan, shamanic. Uh, they were not Muslim. Uh, they were kind of, they're pretty hostile to the, to the Arabs uh, and Muslim Turks because um, they kept trying to conquer them. You know, they were just like, no, we don't want to get conquered. Um, so what I think the Judah Halevi, I think what he said is like, actually the Khazar elite at some point converted to, converted to Judaism uh, because it wasn't Christianity and it wasn't Islam. So it allowed them to be neutral. Um, the majority of the population probably never converted to Judaism. Uh, probably, I mean, there are Muslim Khazars, uh, there are Christian Khazars, mostly pagan, probably. Um, the Khazars were mostly destroyed with the rise of Kiev and Rus, uh, which is, you know, proto-Russian state uh, ruled by Varangians, uh, you know, Rus, Sweden, Swedes, who became Slavicized around like 1000 AD, a little earlier. Um, and so that was that. And so there's a theory that these Khazar Jews are the ancestors of Ashkenazim. Um, the genetics don't support that. Uh, we don't see any. So Razid Khan, who's speaking here, I think he's a uh... John Davishir's favorite blogger. He's uh, he's he's black. He's uh, Caribbean. He's uh, Jamaican. These are the ancestors of Ashkenazim. Um, the genetics don't support that. Uh, we don't see any. So we don't see very. We see almost no Asian ancestry in Ashkenazim. So I'm gonna here's an exception. And I mentioned this in my podcast with Joshua Lipson, or he mentioned it. Um, I had known about this. There is one mitochondrial DNA lineage uh, that's clearly Chinese in Ashkenazi Jews. That means that there was a Chinese woman in the 1300s who married into the European Ashkenazi communities. And her descendants are still... Because, like, this is, like, it doesn't get diluted, the mitochondrial. So you can actually see the closest match to this mitochondrial DNA are all in northern China. So so, so that would coincide with Mongol rule in the area, yeah. wouldn't it? So it's yeah. probably some sort of Mongol co- conquest-related... Yeah, it's probably, probably a woman that was bought at a slave market who was from China, probably being sold by Mongols, the Tatars, and, you know, you know married some Jewish guy and her descendants, you know... They're all over the place. Like, like her, her mitochondrial DNA is all over Central Europe. Uh, she was very successful, you know. Could, could, could be me. My, um, my, my mother's sides are Frischlings, which is uh, German for little wild boar, um, kind of ironically, little wild pig for a Jewish family. But, yeah. um, and, uh, and, and with, uh, you know, you mentioned previously kind of Western um, 
Polish Galician region, effectively. So my that's there were shtetl people there. So that's obviously you know, famous now for being killing fields of, of yeah, Europe yeah. And, and the like. So we uh, that's where we're uh, we're descended from. So I've probably pro- got some Chinese in me from this Chinese lady from 1300s. So awesome. So what what is a there's a the, the Khazar theory. Um, it's kind of you know it's kind of um, related to anti-Semitic uh, undergroups who kind of say, oh, you're not really Middle Eastern, you're all kind of Slavic anyway. And um, there's a there's a there's a I don't know how apocryphal this is the story, but um, uh, you know, the, there's a famous story around the, the king um, bringing in Christians, Jews, and Muslims to uh, yeah. tell him who he should uh, convert to. And he basically told them to, to pitch him. And so um, and I've heard like a range of variations of the story. You probably have a, have a better version. But um, it was the, uh, you know, the, the, the Muslims basically said, yeah, look, it's all good. What's God? But um, you, know, you just can't drink alcohol and uh, any pork. And he said, well, I don't, I, uh, that, that's out, obviously. I, I like alcohol. I like eating pork. Roman Christians came to him and basically said, well, um, you know, we separate state and church. He said, well, I don't want to separate state and church, so you're out. And, and, and the Jews were rejected because they could not present a land that they, that they lived in. So Orthodox Christianity was, was ultimately chosen. But um, I've had other versions where, you know, the Jews were ultimately selected for, I don't remember why, some funny reason, but um, I don't know yeah. if there's a... Yeah, so all groups, you know, have self-serving stories about how awesome they are and how they're better than everyone else. It's just how our minds work. I mean, I know my own mind often comes up with, oh, you know, you're awesome, 40, (laughs) you know, because of this or that quality, all right? It's it's the way that, you know, groups and individuals try to ward off a a feeling of insignificance. But uh, if you want to study history as scholarship, then then you can't can't study things that you've got a strong emotional attachment to, or you're just going to be blind. But uh, stories are a good way to objectively understand how the people see themselves. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's like a top post, right? It's like, it's, it's, like a, it's a common, like, explanatory, I think, uh, mythic origin for a lot of these things, where it's like, okay, like, you make a pitch. It's like a, it's like a, you know, it's like a startup. You're like trying to raise money, and you go to Sand Hill Road, and they're like, you know, what's what's, what's your elevator pitch? You know, like, well, as, you, as we spoke about last time, uh, the you know Genghis Khan did do this, or, or, the, or the Khans did do this to the. Okay, I did. Okay, I did. Yeah, yeah. Okay, I did. He, I, I did. Like uh, these debates were just like a big deal, um, and you know, a lot of the debates like they wanted to set up partly because like there were just arguments, and they wanted like these people to like be chill and stop arguing because they're just like you know we don't care like what you believe. <laughs> Like we're just number one, and God gave us the world. So boom, right? I mean, that was that was, that was a basic Mongol argument. God gave us the world. Whatever you think about God, He gave us the world. So just as long as you agree with that, right? I think, as I mentioned previously, yeah, I misspoke. Uh, Razib Khan, as the chat points out, is Pakistani, not uh, Jamaican. Slay. Um, you've written three excellent pieces, which I recommend everyone um, check out if they're interested to learn more. So now moving on to genetics land. What's been happening? Well, okay. So um, let's talk about like how much things have changed. Uh, so. Okay, let's just uh, leave it there for now. Time for me to go on a walkabout. Bye-bye.